0: What's up, y'all? January 6, 2006. This is the promotional practice live chat. Uh, thank you so much for watching. First one of 2016. Sorry for being... Or did I say 2006? Jesus. Off to a roaring beginning. January 6, 2016. This is the first chat of 2016. I am Luke Thomas, senior editor of MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to kick this new year off. Barbus is here. I'm here. I'm um, here. Yeah, let's do this. So on today's chat, let's see what we got going on. We've got UFC 195 results. That's important. We've got um, a lot of debate about the 10-point must system. Judging an MMA generally, I think. We've got more than that. We've got, um, um, I think, Cruz versus Dillashaw. Interest is heating up. If you didn't see the BJJ scout video I posted yesterday on Twitter, I'll post it in the comments or if someone else would do me the honor of that. Um, borrowed some stuff from my interviews but did all of his own analysis of course but you know Cruz and I talked about footwork took some of those audio clips put it to use broke down some film uh, it's tremendous so we'll talk about some of that we'll talk about DJ Dillashaw we'll talk about I don't know did y'all see Star Wars that was good too we'll, we'll get to anything you want to get to best place to do that of course is MMAfighting.com and uh, comments that turn green get priority but not exclusivity saw some people complain that I didn't get down to Questions at the bottom of the page. So I'll try to skip around a little bit. I'll start in order and then I'll skip around a little bit as the chat goes on. Um, you can get at me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. And uh, without further ado, let's get this going. Oh, and by the way, I have no drink today. I left everything downstairs. This is, I'm upstairs in my home. Um, this is where my office is. I'm in my home office basically. I know you saw the double doors before, but I'm in my home office and, uh, it's actually a nice setup. I've got my Xbox one over there, Google Chromecast. I got my DirecTV up here, got my flat screen, couch, printer, desk, computer, but I don't, I don't have a fridge. And so as a consequence, I didn't bring anything with me. Kind of a bummer. All right. With that out of the way, um, let's go happy new year look looking back on 2015 do you consider it your best year professionally interesting question to start with uh between the continued upward growth of the podcasts your serious xm show and your writing on the site technique talk for example do you feel this was the year that made the most impact to you or is there another year that stands out more to you please tell the great Barbus to update his twitter we will we were thinking about that the other day um was this my best year professionally? No, it was not, actually. Far from it. Uh, it was a good year. Um, the chat got better. I have a nicer equipment, things like that. Um, still a work in progress, of course, but um, the beat was good. No, things went well in 2016, uh, two, mm, 2015. But I think my lesson about that was, I got, I'm got. i going to cut back on some of my projects, I think. Not, I mean, I can't cut back on some of them, but On the ones that i can i'm going to cut back on and um i was a little bit disconnected from i think mma news as much as i should have as much as i would like to have been uh, in terms of like digging up my own stories um and um you know 2015 was a year where i tried to like life is only as interesting as the number of times you say yes and so with that i often try any number of different projects um, some of them work, some of them don't. And I really don't, I don't take too much issue with ones that do or don't. You know, you only need a couple that work and you can have a good career, to be perfectly honest. But, um, I think 2016 is going to be a year of sort of recalibrating and reinvesting in things that, um, have a longer term potential. So 2015 was a year of, tr- uh, experimentation, was a year of trying different things, was a year of, uh, looking around and, um, you know, uh, attempting to build the, the foundations of things. And now I want to make those pretty. I want to make those better. I want to reinvest in those things that like this chat, for example, uh, want to continue to make these things better rather than just sort of keep on doing what we've been doing. Um, and you may say, Oh, well, you've been saying that forever and the progress has admittedly been slow on some fronts, but, but yeah, I think 2016 is going to be a year where the work gets a little bit sharper. The details get a little bit finer. Um, that's what needs to happen, I think, this year. It's critically important for me. But uh, if you guys liked it, I'm happy. And there's Barbas. You can hear him just being awful and annoying. He got a haircut. Come here, buddy. Come here. Say hi. <laughs> You're being annoying. All right, let's go. Hi, Do you think Lawler is a one-trick pony? I love the guy, but I think he relies on his boxing and takedown defense too much. Even though he talks about growing and getting better and sharper, I've yet to see anything in a fight from him that suggests that. I personally believe this is a trend with ATT fighters. They all rely on their strengths. Well, I mean, I'm not sure who relies on their weaknesses. Also, this has been a breakthrough year for Luke. He's gotten some high-profile interviews, Coker, Gibson. Uh, yeah, no, the Coker interview was fun, too. The Gibson interview was good. Um, getting back to Lawler, I think what you're seeing a little bit is, I mean, look, you see, you see with ATT guys, they rely on their strengths. Well, like I said before, everyone relies on their strengths, but actually, I would say it's quite the opposite. I mean, if you go back and you watch some of the morning analysts, I talk about the Poirier Duffy fight, and what you see in that fight is not all of it, obviously, but a huge chunk of Duffy's offense runs through his boxing or things he builds off of his boxing. He just simply off his back, he's got a decent guard, of course. Yeah, he has actually no more than decent. He has a very good guard. He's got some finer details that he gets right, you know. But, um, you know, he doesn't have a Demian Maya or he doesn't have a Fabricio Verdum guard. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't have that kind of guard. So, um, what I would say is the guys like Dos Santos, Junior Dos Santos, the guys like Robbie Lawler, guys like Joe Duffy, who have very formidable skills in one slash one and a half. Of phases of the game, you can go really, really far with that. Two of the guys I just mentioned were UFC champions. This is not to suggest that they are somehow um, underachievers necessarily, but I think over the long haul, what you're going to find is the guys who have a any number of different weapons with a couple of aces in the hole. Um, those are the guys who are going to go the furthest. Guys who have a tremendous boxing game, but also maybe you know really good wrestling. Guys who have like Dustin Poirier great dirty boxing, um, the ability to pass on top, the ability to give you trouble in scrambles. You know, Duffy just kind of lacked a refinement in a lot of those other positions that Dustin Poirier did not, you know. And I think it was really brought to light. Junior Dos Santos, you're seeing, if you can't land the big shot on you, you know he's not going to take you down, at least not very well. Um, he'll defend the takedown pretty well, but he's not really going to do a whole lot of kicking. Yes, I know Mark Hunt fight, blah, blah, blah. I'm just telling you, for the most part, his offense kind of runs through one thing. Lawler, same thing. They are quite formidable. I just don't know, that, you know how sustainable this is. To say nothing of the fact that I think when you see guys like Dos Santos and Lawler, despite the fact that they have these tremendous... Um, they have one phase of the game where they're extraordinary at it. I also don't think it's a coincidence that Junior Dos Santos has been in a lot of wars, and neither ha- and so has Robbie Lawler. Part of that you could say is parity at the top of welterweight, and you could say, well, um, Dos Santos too tough for his own good against an overmatched Velasquez. But I think the two are kind of inextricably linked. If you know you have one way to win, and you can be very durable, and you can shut down at least a big portion of your opponent's offense with your, in case of Dos Santos, takedown defense, and Lawler too. Um, you're going to you're going to necessarily leave yourself exposed. You're going to define the fight on certain terms where you can. It gives you the best chance to win, but it also creates a lot of opportunity for you to get ab- abused. Um, in this particular case, the striking right. So um, I don't. You know I don't. I would not classify what the dynamics of the welterweight division as tantamount to heavyweight. But I, I also don't think it's coincidence that um, guys like Lawler and Dos Santos, again, Lawler is a little bit more well-rounded than Dos Santos. Again, I don't want them to say they're one for one. But you get the idea. Guys who have, you know what they're going to do for the most part. Not entirely. You can't say that's all they're going to do. It's not true. But there's some parallels there. And it's not to me a coincidence that they all take a lot of damage at the highest level. It's not to me a coincidence that they blow through guys just below that highest level. You know, if you give Lawler someone who's not a championship-level welterweight, chances are, at this point, this version of Lawler is going to just run steamroll them. But once you get to that elite level, it's just really, really hard to make those guys pay. Um, you know, the fact that Dos Santos had wars with Miocic and so forth. Um, I just feel like you can do really well with that, no doubt about it. But there are a lot of consequences to that, especially as you ascend to that very, very r- rarefied space at the top of the divisions. Someone says, uh, I have no question. Just wanted to thank you for your work and content, and particularly giving mention to the BJJ Scout breakdown you collaborated on. As I mentioned on Twitter, it is a sublime piece of work. All the credit there goes to BJJ Scout. Can't recommend you watch it enough. You know, it's funny to me, um, talking about this BJJ Scout video real quickly. Look, I would not classify what BJJ Scout does as journalism per se. I don't – it's not exactly what's happening here. He's not a journalist in any sense that uh, makes a whole lot of – it doesn't feel, the definition doesn't feel adequate for what he does, but he's certainly a member of the media, the larger media. Um, and to that end, when people say you know MMA media is bad, again, he's not at press conferences raising his hand and talking about fighter pay necessarily. He's got a narrow focus. He likes to talk about technique and evolution of technique and and strategy and what what basically what happens in the game itself, um, which is an important thing. I'm just saying that's his focus. This, to me, BJJ Scout, I mean, I don't want to take credit for his achievements, but to me, when people are like, oh, the MMA media is bad, I'm like, you take guys like BJJ Scout, you take guys like Robin Black, Lawrence Kenshin, Jack Slack, uh, Patrick Wyman, Connor Rubush, um, and if, miss, if I'm leaving somebody out, forgive me, but just those guys, just the six guys alone, and I'll put myself in the group at the very ass end of it, you know, you're talking about, I'm not going to say that there is no one who. Oh, and how about Dan Hardy doing some of the stuff that he does with the Unibet previews? You know, you're talking about a time in MMA where breakdowns have never been better. At a concurrent time that the technique has never been higher. It'd be one thing if the technique was was so good that we could barely get a grasp on it, and uh, maybe the guys at the highest level of the game will look at our analysis and say this is. Um, you know, deeply inadequate. Maybe that's the case too. I don't think so. You know, Keenan Cornelius has endorsed BJJ Scouts work. Faraz Zahabi, hobby. Another guy doing analysis to the extent he can in between his coaching duties. I swear to God, barbus I swear to God, dog. You are gonna go to the pound. Stop walking around. <laughs> another guy that does a tremendous analysis. The po- the point being is, you know, when people say MMA media have problems, they're right. Like there are any number of shortcomings you can identify and particularly maybe more so at the journalistic traditional sense of things end end of the spectrum, but in the wider spectrum of media of which BJJ scout is a part, um, you know, we're talking about a moment in time where you've just never had analysis this good. Never, never in a million years. It's never happened. The fight analysis in MMA is truly at a moment in time that is better than it's ever been. Um. So, whatever claims you want to make about MMA media, I'm willing to hear them, good and bad. But let it let the record show that when we talk about how good is MMA media, um, you can get breakdowns like this. Chris Cooley does breakdowns of the Skins games uh, on ESPN 980 the following week. But you know, it does does it over the radio access. You can get access to film. You can see stuff on on, on YouTube. But this is all the domain of, um, you know, the power holders in the sport. BJJ Scout, as, I, as far as I know, is just a guy who has, obviously, a tremendous insight and knowledge, but just decided to start making videos. And, um, you know, there's a real, there's a real hobbyist cheek to it, and yet it's professionally done at a professional level. And I really think that needs to be noted. You want to talk about MMA media? Fine. But if you're going to talk about the bad stuff, you should talk about the good stuff. And if you're going to talk about some of the good stuff, some of the good stuff is the fact that analysis today, fight analysis you know, predictions are, I don't think, have gotten any better, but analysis generally has gotten much better. And it's basically better than it's ever been. Uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on Floyd Mayweather's recent comments about racist perceptions comparing uh, his promotional style to Conor McGregor and how both are viewed by fans, al- along with his comparisons with Layla Ali and Ronda Rousey? I personally don't think it's fair to compare Ronda and Layla side by side. Layla has been retired from boxing for quite some time, and female boxing has been a very niche sport for a very long time, blah, 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 blah. But does he have any valid points with his comparisons with Connor's treatment? Floyd might be talking a bit of crap, but there could be any underlying truth to some of his comments, at least with the UFC's unusual promotion of Page and Sage. Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, I would say from a general perspective, Mayweather is correct there are going to be any number of you that simply refuse to accept the reality that we live in, that there is a racial disparity in terms of of how people are treated. Um, The racial disparity does not exist every time. It does not exist in every circumstance. Um, Sometimes the disparity can be hard to identify about how it falls along racial lines, but the evidence is unequivocal at this point that there is simply a disparity, both um, economically, socially, socially, Um, politically, any number of ways you want to describe that African-Americans in this country are not treated the same. They're just not, you know, it's not up for debate. They're not. And um, someone like Mayweather uh, is right when he says that brash African-Americans get a little bit of a a less favorable media treatment um, than uh, Conor McGregor is not American, but he's Irish. And, you know, we know in the history of fight sports, Irish have been somewhat symbolic for um almost symbolic but certainly have been a strong representative a forward representative of um you know you, there's all these cliches about so-and-so boxers i think uh you know what for example um co event podcast talked about that like they'll put a white boxer out there they will just call him irish um i think they were talking about the great white hype sort of mocking that fact uh the movie the difference with mayweather And here come the downvotes, right? But the difference with Mayweather is that uh, he is a horrible person and that there is a strong degree of treatment that he has gotten, that he has deserved. In fact, there's a huge portion that hasn't even been piled on him. Um, In fact, in some ways, because of his celebrity, his his success, irrespective of his um, racial background, um, has shielded him in many ways. You know, Stephen A. Smith out there carrying water for him, on Sports Center, all those Sports Center segments he did prior to the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. Um, so, look, I, I've interviewed Mayweather a few times. He's not dumb, you know. Maybe he lacks some kind of formal education, and in that sense has a bond with Conor McGregor. But uh, he is not a stupid person. He is a very adept, bright guy. He understands what's going on in the world around him, and when he makes claims that even um, you know celebrated figures who are African American when they speak up and when they let their voices be heard or they show a, you know, a demonstrative personality, they don't get the same treatment that a lot of other athletes do who aren't black. This to me is not even up for debate. This is totally true. It just so turns out that the guy delivering the message, uh, in Floyd Mayweather is a horrible person. Much of the pushback he's gotten in his career, especially of late is absolutely deserved. Um, Conor McGregor does not have an arrest record for domestic violence. Conor McGregor um, has not, to my knowledge, arm-twisted media into giving him favorable coverage. Uh, erstwhile embroiled in scandal, you know. So Floyd Mayweather is the wrong messenger, but Floyd Mayweather's general message, irrespective of his career, is, is absolutely correct. DJ Scout, here we go. BJ and Scout study part two, Dominic Cruz and TJ. When we talk about the bump allowing Cruz to come in and out of range with safe structure to draw reaction or to counter, how is this going to be effective as usual when he is fighting TJ, who has a much a such a similar fighting style, which is pretty much a slightly modified copy of what Cruz does. You know, let's talk about this for a second because I don't think that's true. Um Cruz plays with angles much more. Cruz plays with attacks from range much more. Cruz plays with, um, uh, when I say getting out of range, I mean at certain speeds. Cruz plays with um, body positioning much more. And I don't mean this side versus that side. I mean the way in which he leans off the center, with which he bends at the waist, with which he turns at certain angles on a pivot. He does that much more than TJ Dillashaw. TJ Dillashaw, what he does, and I think Brandon Gibson talked about this a little bit, TJ Dillashaw is, I mean, phenomenal at just switching stances at all the time before a combo in the middle of a combination at the end of a combination. He does go side to side. I think much more defensively than offensively. He's a little bit more straightened back. Um, I'm not saying he's a straightened back fighter. Don't Don't misunderstand me. Saying relative to Cruz, Cruz is sort of weaving like this a little bit always, and he's much more about just hitting you when he's open and about not getting hit. T.J. Dillashaw is a pocket occupier relative to dominant Cruz. So it's true that Cruz was borrowed by Dillashaw. His style was borrowed by Dillashaw in his time during Team Alpha Male. He was the guy who was going to mimic him, but he's definitely come up with his own style. It's not the same. And so when I think Brandon Gibson was talking about who's going to outflank the other one, I think that's really going to be key. You're not going to beat, if you're Dominic Cruz, you can't really fight in a straight line because that's just not what you do anyway. But even if you did it anyway, you're not going to beat TJ Dillashaw going forward and backward on him. It's just really not going to work. Um, because that's the space he occupies. He's a pressure fighter, TJ Dillashaw is. He likes to come forward. He can fight backwards, and he can fight at angles. But really what he's like to do, he likes to pressure you forward. He likes to switch stances. He likes to switch stances through combinations so fluidly, you don't know what's coming next. So there's an the element of surprise. There are angles there. There are a lot of feints to draw reactions and then to counter. But the guy who's playing with space much more is Dominic Cruz, for sure. That's the guy. So, it's going to be to me how much of a matador is Dominic Cruz versus how much does Dominic Cruz get corralled and then pummeled? That to me is what this this, this match comes down to. You know, everyone's saying D- Dillashaw is Cruz light, maybe in a few certain respects, but generally speaking, Dillashaw has his own style. When, when Dillashaw, look, you see Dillashaw on all these events next to Dominic Cruz. This is so bad for Dillashaw because. He's not that great at arguing for himself, even when he has a point. And when he has a point and says, "I may have started borrowing you, but I've kind of adapted my own thing." He's right. He's hundred percent right. Cruz is going to say what he's going to say to play mind games with him, to big brother him, to to you know to 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 undercut him, to make him look foolish. And to Cruz's credit, to a large extent, he has. You know, there's just really no getting around that. Cruz has been very effective with some of the negative things he has said not that his arguments are true but that that uh, some of them might be but but that he has certainly had a you know I, I was very skeptical of some of the mind game stuff that Conor McGregor was trying I get a real sense and Brian Stan echoed this on my radio show on SiriusXM that this is sort of really annoying TJ Dillashaw there's a big big difference between the two when it comes to a game like this I don't think Dillashaw's had to prepare for an opponent like this his biggest opponent before was Henan Barrau who didn't even speak the same language Dominic Cruz is right in his face and is saying a bunch of horrible things to him and undercutting him and I think I think that Dillashaw would be the first to acknowledge and, and has publicly that his style may have initially had its roots in Cruz mimicry but let's be clear about this. Let's be fair to TJ Dillashaw. That is not what is happening today. He is an ambidextrous fighter who switches stances through combinations before and after. He's a pressure fighter. He likes to come forward. He will occupy the pocket. He will shift in the pocket. I mean, when I say occupies the pocket, I don't mean he plants his feet and goes. But he'll shift in that pocket. He really likes to stay there. Cruz likes to like to likes to attack you in the pocket and get right out. He doesn't doesn't play a lot in that space. He's much more interested in making you miss making you have a bad day, making sure you just don't look the way you're supposed to look and that you can't figure out what he's doing. Dillashaw is that way in some capacities, but is much more about overwhelming you with force. As for part three of um, EJJ Scouts thing, I'm not sure when it's coming out. Luke, I asked this question a couple weeks ago, but we didn't have time to get to it. Cowboy's last two KO losses to Dos Anjos and before that to Anthony Pettis. The hard strikes to the stomach midsection. Cowboy last year shared that he had lost half of his stomach and six inches of his intestines during a quadricycle accident. Is that a four-wheeling accident? Uh, Could this have been one of the reasons why fighters have finished Cowboy so quickly? I certainly can't rule it out. I'm not a doctor. I mentioned before that he has a lot of real estate to manage there. It's very hard for him to do that to keep his hand here up here and leave everything open, you know, and Dos Anjos is, is quick. He can get you to, to bite on fence and then unload on you. So um, I, I can't rule it out, but I don't know. By now, everyone that listens to your podcast should know your thoughts on adding a bunch of new weight classes at this time. My question is, which fighter do you think would benefit the most if the UFC were to scrap 170 and add 165, 175, 195? Fighters like Johnny Hendricks come to mind since he's had trouble making that weight. See, Hendricks might one of these, one of these, be one of these guys who goes to 175, but think about a guy who goes to 170 and can probably maybe cut a few more. We always think of like, oh, everyone at 170 is 100, or 90 pounds, 200 pounds, and struggles to make 200. There might be a couple of guys who are not quite like that, and they're going to they're try and make 165. Um, I don't know. You could say Hendrix is one. Um, Gastelum might be another. Anyone who's had trouble making a weight at one seventy or has just has a look like themselves. Um, at 165, maybe uh who who's small for Welterweight? Let me look up the rankings here. I would be I'd be curious to see. I mean the rankings are bad, I'm just gonna look for some names. Um let's see. Demian Maya is big. I don't know if Dong Kong Kim can make it. Um, I'd be curious to see what Barboza looks like at 165, but I don't know if these guys really want to do that. UFC 193 betting block. We make of the betting block placed on UFC 193 by Victoria, Australia's gambling and liquor regulator. I, I don't think anything of it. Luke King Mo has recently called out Fedor Milianenko. Now the chance of him fighting on a Bellator card would be slim since he's, I'm guessing, signed to a rise in fighting. But how would you think a matchup between the two would go? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know what? You guys are going to laugh at me. I like most chances there. I'm not guaranteeing a win for him. Mo has shown an ability to keep his career relevant um, through outrageous injury and promotional upheaval. Uh, I thought he beat Rampage. I was there that night. I thought he won that fight. You can say whatever about the fact that he didn't. So to me, when we look at his record, let's see, let's go look at that. The fact that he goes up to heavyweight and fights these guys to me is like kind of tremendous. He's just found really novel and interesting ways to to stay super, super, super relevant. Um, let's see. So, if you if you take away the Jackson loss, which I think he won, he'd have wins over uh, Mikhail Zayat, Rampage, Dustin Jacoby, Joe Vadipo, Chet Congo, Linton Vassal, Brett McDermott, and then these two donks from Ryzen. You know, that's not the most impressive resume in terms of, like, John Jones necessarily, but it's a very, very good one. It's a very relevant one. It's a very interesting one. Um, you know, the Chet Congo thing was split, but this is a guy who was a middleweight title holder for strike force. And – um. I know it's 205, excuse me. 205. Um, let me look up how far he's gone down. Yeah, no, I don't. I, what am I saying middleweight for? Light heavyweight. I'm sorry. Need my caffeine, y'all. Uh, but I think he probably could. I think he's made it before. I think he's told me that. Um, in any event, in terms of LaWal versus Fedor, Fedor still has a little bit of speed. Um, mode is. You know, Mo is, uh, I think, lost a little bit of speed because it's when the, you know, he's just older. He's 36. He has certainly had a number of injuries related to the things that give him explosive burst, um, namely his knees. I mean, I think he's a lot better than he used to be. You see him in person, he's still got a physically hulking frame, but um, I don't think quite has the uh, athletic burst he did in his heyday. All that said, you know, uh, in a cage, I would especially like his chances because I think he could take down, I think he could pass a little bit. He's got heavy ground and pound. Um, he could cut Fedor in a ring. It'd be a little bit harder, five rounds. I don't know. But I think Lawal could beat him. I really do. I absolutely think Lawal could beat him. And I know, you know, Lawal, another guy, an outspoken guy who, and I'm an African-American that people like to hate, but um, I definitely like his chances. Are you taking in these upcoming matchups? All right, so you guys know how it works here. I give you a response. You're only allowed to take that as conditional. I reserve the right to change my pick at the last minute for my official prediction posts. Uh, and once again, got four to five. I mean, I bombed on the main card because I thought. I mean, I, for 195, I thought Kish won. Excuse me, I thought um, Ansaroff won. I thought Noak won. There were some other ones I thought that were like real sketchy. But on the main card, went four for five. I thought Condit won that fight. You can make a case Condit won that fight. And I would have gone 5-for-5 five on five the main card. I 4-for-5 on the main card. Just just want to point out. Oh, and I called Dober over Holtzman. Just want to point out when you do well in predictions, none of y'all say anything. It's only when you do bad. Just pointing that out. Uh, okay, Pettis versus Alvarez. Alvarez is going to wrestle him. This is a big test for Pettis if he can withstand the wrestling. I'm going to go with Pettis. Um, Safadine versus Ellenberger. Ooh. Mm, I'll say Safadine. Hendricks versus Thompson. Another tough one. I'll say Hendricks, but barely. Cowboy versus Means. Probably going to say Means. He's just a bigger guy, but I love that fight. How do you not love that fight? How do you not love Cowboy Cerrone saying, all right, look, it didn't go well for the title run, but I'm not, I'm not quitting on this. This, this. There's no way I'm stopping doing this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go up a weight class. We're going to fight another scrapper. We're going to fight a guy uh, who is, you know, just we'll mix it up everywhere, who's an action fighter, and let's see what happens. If it's a bad loss at another weight class, so what? You know, just get up and do it again. Because you know can is still a very competitive athlete, certainly at 155. Let's see how good he is at 170. I love this fight so much. I'll probably take means, but I'm not counting Cowboy out by any stretch. Uh, Garbrandt versus Lineker. I like Garbrandt. He gets hit a little too much for me. I'm going to go Lineker. Musasi versus Lighty's, another tough one, but I'll take Musasi. Connor, Ronda, and Jose big time. Recently, Rolling Stone included Connor in their top oh, excuse me, in their top twenty fifteen Sex Symbols list, and okay, and declared him the biggest star in MMA today. Jose Aldo has just become the only MMA fighter on Forbes thirty under thirty, and Rousey's gonna host SNL. What do such accolades and success say about MMA stars and how the wider world views them? This is what I'm talking about. Look, I don't know how much you want to credit Fox Sports. I don't know that you can do that. You know, the Brock Lesnar era was interesting because of the commercial success that that he and ultimately the UFC enjoyed. Right? Big pay-per-view buys, big gates. I also noted that at the time, Lesnar was better about recruiting the sports media, not, you know, fringe Professional wrestling media, like 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 real deal, heavy hitting sports media, to UFC fights in ways that other fights had not been previously. But what he was simply, all, all he simply was, was a precursor to today, where you're getting, as you've noted, Rousey hosting SNL, thirty under thirty. I can't believe he's included in that list, but okay, McGregor's included in the list for. I think they're calling them biggest star today. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even argue with that necessarily. Um, but what it shows you is that in terms of um, You know, certainly mainstream acceptance, but it's more than just sort of accepting you, it's inclusion. There's a difference between someone saying, I accept what you're doing, versus making it a part of what they're doing. That's another step to me. And this is what I talked about when I was sort of, I mean, I wasn't angry at Richard Deitch at Sports Illustrated, but when I'm going to keep talking about this because I really think it's important. When these end-of-year lists come out, the people who make them have every right to put on there who they want and not put on there who they don't want. And if they don't pay attention to MMA, you can't expect them to reasonably think of or include those pieces. They're only going to know the universe that, which surrounds themselves. So in that sense, I have no real argument. But if the argument is you want to pay attention to quality and sports media, the exclusion of MMA at this point is growing more arbitrary for the reasons I just mentioned. Because it's not just that they accept MMA as a sport. It is now that it has become included in the larger sporting diet among fans. When I talk about the UFC's deal with Fox Sports 1, what has been some of the major achievements to date? You could list a number of things. But I truly believe that getting MMA as part of a sporting diet, and it wasn't just with Fox Sports 1. This has been something they've been hammering ESPN with for a while as well. Getting mainstream sports organs to say, do not treat us as something you merely tolerate. You are willing to accept our existence and occasionally, you know, look your way. No, no. Our achievements need to be held on par with with other sports figures' achievements. Our big events need coverage along with their big events. And, of course, you can, you know, quibble about what deserves to go where and how much, and fine, we can have that discussion later. But I believe what you're seeing with Rousey and McGregor, to some extent, they're leading the charge. To some extent, they're symptomatic of the larger change. But you're just seeing MMA as part of the sports ecosystem. And there are any number of reasons why this is happening rousey driving it mcgregor stolen star power driving it ufc and fox sports 1 having an alignment ufc hammering espn to make sure some changes were made and how things were um covered in terms of fairness and all and then more and more i can list a thousand things but you get the idea and these things together are making mma you know hasn't fundamentally changed my day as a fan or a um, journalist that maybe doesn't day-to-day change your day as a fan or journalist but there is definitely a difference now 2015 everyone's like oh they made 600 million dollars blah 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 blah, and i'm like yeah that's true you know and i've also made the point when rousey leaves she's going to take a lot of this uh, you know mainstream attention with her there are people who I- i'm telling you if you re- if you read awful announcing or for the win they only talk about mma basically when it's something's either truly viral or it's just ronda rousey news when rhonda has gone, they're going to be gone too. So, you know, to, to some extent, this is also fleeting. But if 2015 evidenced anything, it said that commercial success, um, unlike in the Lesnar era, which did have a bump in media attention, it didn't have the bump to the point where it became partners, um, you know, shared rarefied space with the elite of the elite. That space we just never enjoyed. To your point. Um, this is something new. You know, Lesnar could bring in the New York Times. That was interesting. And he could do massive buy rates, to some extent unparalleled. Um, but he couldn't bring in huge paydays with this kind of peering in. Not just, it's, it's not even just the mainstream peering in anymore. It's the mainstream sort of accepting for what it is and now realizing, you know, Look at the crawl on ESPN. How much has the crawl on ESPN changed in the last few years? It used to be just, you know, um, here's NBA news, NFL news, hockey news, Major League Baseball news. And then, of course, there was like, you know, a Champions League final. You might see that. Um, if there was a big fight, you might see a top 10 play or something like that. Now the crawl, the crawl is included Atletico Madrid play today at uh, at the Calderon. What? On the crawl? Who did Borussia Dortmund play on the crawl? UFC news. Fight got canceled. Someone signed up for it. Misha Tate's in. Someone was out on the crawl daily. It's, it's, it's crazy. That's the difference. One thing is to merely say, okay, you've earned a place where we can acknowledge you. The other one is to say, have a seat at the table. When will fighters learn being a company man hardly ever is in the is the best route long-term? It's a good question. After his unteamed time being left dangling in the wind, Frankie Edgar admitted to Ariel that being a company man hasn't worked out well for him. Um, Liddell and, and Hughes were a company man, and it all seems to have gotten them as negligible official-sending jobs plus retirement Yeah, but that's good. That's a good thing. I'm sure that was worth citing over the likeness rights in perpetuity, having basically zero leverage in negotiations. Yeah. This is what you get for being a company, man. You see that UFC video game? I, I refuse to play this video game. Like, I understand EA has good intentions, and frankly, I truly believe this. The, U- the UFC is going to do business to what extent they believe is the best, and I don't think they wake up every day being like, gee, the way we do things is so unethical. I don't think they do that, but you, you understand that those guys don't make a dime from that. When you buy that video game, the money gets divvied up. They don't get a penny the fighters so i'm just not i'm not i'm not playing this game man i'm not playing and and you're asking well do you play you know um ncaa football or basketball nope sure don't sure don't and i you know i like those sports although that's somewhat exploitative that i watch it so i'm a bit of a hypocrite but you get the idea meanwhile conor mcgregor is positioning himself to become a big enough entity to be able to call shots which most of which which most fighters can't it seems clear which route is better for fighters to take, yet many are still content to accept whatever crumbs, this is his words, not mine, Massa deems fit to give them. Why are so many fighters, many of whom are college-educated, so dumb? Well, they're not dumb. But they're trying to navigate a world, and they, they look, these guys, all they want to focus on is fighting. That's all they want to focus on. They just want to wake up on a Monday, kiss their wife goodbye, rub their kid on the head, go train for a couple of hours, come back, take a nap, eat, go back, train, come back, Go to, a, uh, go to a fight, maybe you know get a bonus, maybe get a six-figure check, and they want to go home, and that's the kind of life they want. It's amazing to me that some of these fighters have big dreams. They really do. Some of these fighters just have medium dreams. There's nothing wrong with having a medium dream. Some people want a big life. Maybe you watching right now, you want a big life. You want to be on TV. You want to be a celebrated reporter. You want to be an athlete yourself, maybe. Some people don't want big lives. They just want medium lives. But I think what they're finding is even some of these mid-range things that they want or things they see their peers getting, or maybe when they begin to expand the horizon of what kind of life they want, at least in terms of financial security, which a title shot for Frankie Edgar would you know, uh, certainly help, right? Um, they're beginning to reevaluate things. Look, there has I, I truly believe if you go back and you watch um, early UFC stuff, you, know, you see Dana White and UFC Brass talking about becoming partners with fighters for mutual benefit, and maybe one party benefited more than the other, but it's clear there were individual cases, and I've this before you know it right now, Liddell and Hughes. It is unequivocal that their alignment of their interests with the promoter's interests really paid handsome dividends. This is not to say had they decided not to do that, that it wouldn't have, but it's pretty hard to argue that Liddell aligning himself with I mean, you could make whatever argument you want about his health reasons, but he would have continued fighting whether those were in alignment with UFCs or not. Um, And certainly with Hughes, that benefited them. It benefited them a lot. The problem is, unless the promoter is in a position to make you this kind of priority that you think you should be, they're not going to do it of their own volition. Not just UFC, any promoter. This this is the everyone keeps making this argument like this is about UFC. Well, UFC has the biggest stakes here. Okay. Look, all due respect to Bellator, they're not going to do that for you either. Or they might under certain circumstances. And how you figure that out is up to you. But to me, that, you know, if they're not already dumping, if you haven't already seen tons of evidence for it. Where they're putting you on this, and they're trying to get you on that, and your, your contract is just outrageous. Unless you're already feeling it, you're probably not the guy. And it's going to be better for you from a business perspective. I don't know that being acrimonious works, although maybe that might work for a couple. But generally speaking, remember when remember when Brendan Schaub was like, oh, "I'm on Team UFC." Well, I don't think UFC is on Team Schaub, not because they hate Brendan Schaub, but because they're on Team UFC is on Team UFC, which is fine. They're supposed to be. It would be stupid if Team UFC was on Team Shob. Now, there might be moments where Team UFC is aligned with Team shop There might be moments where Team UFC is aligned with Team Edgar. But Team UFC is aligned with Team UFC, generally speaking, which is how it's supposed to be. And Frankie Edgar should be aligned with Frankie Edgar's interests, which is how it's supposed to be. The trick is getting the two aligned for mutual interest when it makes sense. And unless you can compel them to do that, expecting largesse, expecting a benefactor, you know, Charles Dickens style or something, it's just not happening for you. It's just not happening for you, realistically. And everyone's like, oh, this is one thing I'll defend the UFC on. Oh, UFC plays favorites. Yes, of course. They play favorites. Good, they should. They're gonna. That's how, they're good. that's how their interests work. They're going to play the favorites much more than they're not. That that should tell you if you're not a favorite, you got some work to do. You have some interest that you need to make sure get addressed, and you need to make sure you're in a your position to do that. Um, Gilbert Melendez is, to me, I mean, you could say what you want about the losses he's had and the failed drug test and everything else that's going on in his life. That dude got on a TV show and got a title shot and everything else that happened or whatever. He got the fight with Pettis, anyway. You can see my memories. That's not so great. Let me look this up now, because I'm a little bit worried about the fading of nature of my, my memory. Hold on. Yeah. F- got, got the Pettis fight after the Sanchez fight for the title. So he got on the TV show. Got the new contract, got the title shot, and he may have lost to Alvarez after that. So what? My man negotiated a good contract for himself because when it's all over, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to take your company man dollars down to the bank and say, I'm going to pay my mortgage. It is okay to not have, it's not just okay to not have interest aligned with your promoter at all times. Again, sometimes there's going to be mutual interest. It is exactly how life works. You watching this, some of you are not going to like the things I had to say about the racial uh, disparity treatment. I'm not going to get back into the arguments, but you're not going to like it. We're not going to see life the same. Your values, your histories, where you grew up, who raised you, your life experiences, your born IQ, your formal education the good things that have happened to you in life, the bad things, the accidents, the luck, the lotteries. This is all going to shape how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see your value in the world, and how you wish for that value to be protected and shaped. It is impossible, unless you've had an identical reality to me, to see the world the way I do. Hopefully, I hope that you see some overlap. I would hope, and this may not always be the case, it may not even often be the case, I would hope that in times you don't agree with me, you could at least hear where I'm coming from. And I hope that there's times where I don't agree with you, where I can hear where you're coming from. But, you know, to me, fighters, I, I don't know what to say anymore. Every time they took a little more, you were just like, ah, eh, you know what, take my likeness rights in perpetuity. Like this, UFC, this this EA UFC game, I'm like so, I I mean, I could not be less interested in this if I tried. Because when you know the backstory behind it, it's like, who cares, man? Funny gif here. Let's see. Let's see. Rockhold not touching gloves. Looking back a few weeks at UFC 194, I found it fascinating when Rockhold told Wyman he would not touch gloves once the fight started. What did you make of this exchange? Yeah, it's fine. It's not uncommon. I've guys at my gym do the same thing. Some guys don't mind touching gloves. Some guys touch gloves too much. You know, oh, you landed a good shot on me? High five. Uh, I don't like that so much. And some guys are like, look, man, it's fine. No disrespect. I'm just telling you once the fight starts, I'm not doing any of that. I am so laser focused on what I'm doing that I'm not – we're enemies at that point. You know, when the ref pulls me off, we're not enemies anymore. But, um, yeah, I think it's totally normal for this line of work. Uh, It's not – it's not – the most common, but it's not uh, historically unusual uh, if, you know, um, a little bit rare. I think Weidman versus Jacare would be a great headliner for UFC on Fox 19, which I assume would be in April. What do you think thinking? Who would take it? Um, I, of anyone who looked bad at UFC 194, I thought Jacare looked worse than Weidman. And I thought Jacare won that fight, but um, I would take Weidman in that one. All right, so why Carlos Condit should not get a rematch. This is not my words. These are his. We were all treated to a great back-and-forth fight on Saturday night. Uh, The fact of the matter is Condit was two and three in his last five and only one fight winning streak going into this fight. He was not put in there because he was next up. He was there to put on an exciting fight that we would all remember for years to come, and we got that. So why do we need to see it again immediately? I mean, come on. We are living in a world where a champ, Aldo, goes undefeated for 10 years, and doesn't get a rematch. So why should a guy who was not the champ get one because he put in a good fight that was debatable? I scored it for Lawler, by the way. That's him, not me. I believe that to take the belt, you have to put a stamp on your victory and not just eke out a decision. Thoughts? Well, let's, let's. there's a few claims you're making here. Some I'll agree with and some I won't. Number one, you say you have to put your stamp on the victory and not just eke out a decision. That is false. When that fight starts, there is no champion. The belt is at the top of the cage. And you got to go get it, like a pro wrestling match or something. I'm not. What do they call that? I don't know what they call that. But you know what I'm talking about. There's no champion anymore. You walk to the cage as champion. You enter the cage as nobody, and neither does your challenger. It is up for grabs. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, in the unified rules that is supposed to give you, as a judge, deference towards the champion in close contests no sir no ma'am not now not ever that is wrong unequivocally wrong and frankly unethical that's the first part now where i will take some issue there is there have been so many rematches made that some people have rematch fatigue i sympathize with your rematch fatigue but bad uses of rematch should not then make good uses of rematch go away if there is any case for a good rematch, it is this one. As you noted, it wasn't like Condit was on some seven-fight win streak that enabled him to get it. But when you look at how close that contest was, this is much closer in my judgment than even the Hendricks fights. This one was truly a bit of a head-scratcher. And I think also, to me, a little bit easier to make the argument Condit won than Lawler won. I think a Lawler card is justifiable. I wouldn't argue against it, but I think the stronger argument is the Condit won, especially in retrospect. Um... So you have a very, very debatable scorecard. You had what would be an easy commercial sell relative to their star power. Um, and you don't really have an obvious contender out there you could just naturally plug in. You could say Tyron Woodley, and I, I wouldn't be you know, uh, horribly opposed to that. I don't think that'll be the worst idea in the world. Um, but if you're talking about... You, know, you don't want to do rematches when they're forced on the public. You don't want to do rematches... Um, When you're left with no other options, you want to do rematch when there was something left unsettled. And of course, you know, there's commercial wind at your back. I really feel like that's the case here. This is very much unsettled. And what you might get is five more rounds of the same kind of back and forth, in which case I would not call for a third. If they do this for just five more rounds, then that's just, you know, how they're always going to match up, probably. Um, So I'm not saying if they go in another direction outside of rematch that I'll cry about it. But let's just make a couple of clear things here that the rematch reflex has been abused. Does not mean you sh- should continue to abuse it in a backwards way by making a perfectly acceptable rematch, not happen. That would be a travesty um, to your point about, well, you know, he, his record coming in was bad. I find that to be irrelevant. Ultimately, you're trying to settle something about what happened in that 25 minute span that left was left unsettled. So that, to me, doesn't really uh, add up. Now, you're mentioning we live in a champ where Aldo goes undefeated for 10 years and doesn't get a rematch. Now, we don't know he's not going to get a rematch, but to your point, let's say that he doesn't. I would agree that it seems very unfair that a guy like Aldo can't get a rematch and a guy like Condit, who has no record of achievement, you know, again, seven-fight-win-streak, or, you know, four even, to, to merit such a commercial response to get one. That there are disparities in treatment is... Uh, uh, a point I can't challenge that there are disparities in treatment does not mean you should continue to make disparities in treatment to align with already existing disparities. Your argument is basically like, look, well, Jose Aldo didn't get one. Why is this jabroni get one? Well, Jose Aldo, not getting one is a bad thing. If, if in fact, that's what happens. If it is true that Jose Aldo does not get a title shot and I wouldn't, you know, again, uh, If he wants one right away and doesn't get one, you can make a very clear argument that's a bad thing. Why would you compound bad things by by denying Condit one? They get them for two different reasons. Aldo gets one by virtue of his outrageous achievement in the division, his long-standing dominance over it. It is a matter of respect for him. So in that sense, there's something to to solve here. And also, there is something a little bit left unsettled there, about 13 seconds. I mean, maybe Conor McGregor will go and whoop him in 36 seconds next time. But the point being is there's, there's you know, there's... Okay, I should, I should correct that. There are slightly overlapping reasons and then a little bit different ones. With Condit, and I mentioned this before, go back and look at my predictions for 195. What I said was, I'm not sure that... Um, condit's the best welterweight in the division but i like his chances here and then people ask me well who is the best welterweight in the division i don't know i don't know that there is one that's sort of the point right i don't know that lawler's the best welterweight in the division it's not clear that he is he might be but you got guys like condit who can give him a run for his money and Hendricks. Hendricks beat him right god damn my memory is terrible I got to lay off that diet soda, y'all. I don't even have one today. Yes, UFC 171. All right. Um, But there was something deeply left unsettled in the complexion of that contest. And, And frankly, I think it leaves the division unsettled to an extent but who really is the guy here? Uh, and I don't like Condon's chances against Woodley in a rematch for, your, you know, for that point. Um, so, you know, to me, when you have a, a very unique case like Aldo, I think you can look at what has happened in the division and say, you know, a 13-second fight does not properly tell us what the two matchup, the, the real matchup is here. Um, and, you know, we have a guy who wants an immediate rematch um, and has this you know, insane record of achievement, it would be almost dishonorable not to give it to him. This, to me, is a strong argument. But it, you don't get to say, well, this guy had a one-fight win streak, got the title shot, fought his ass off, arguably beat the champ. Ah, no rematch. No! This dude This dude arguably beat the champion. Even if you think it's a Lawler fight, even if you think he won three of the rounds, you should be able to acknowledge it's not all that difficult to argue for one, three, and four for Condit. If you want to argue it's a 2-3-5 and five for Lawler, I can understand that. This is unsettled. You're just going to let that go? I don't think you can do that. Justin Poirier versus Coney Ferguson. How would that fight be, and who would take it? I like Ferguson big there. As good as Poirier looked at lightweight, and maybe you could make that fight. Ferguson, I think, is a little bit too hard of a hitter. I think his movement is way too unorthodox. I think his creativity and scrambles is just too hard for someone like Poirier to deal with. Condit retirement or rematch? Do you think Condit is really going to retire or do you think uh, his after fight comments were just out of frustration? They're not, I mean, I'm sure in some ways they're Im- impacted by frustration, but he was feeling those things beforehand. Um, I hope he doesn't retire, but, you know, if he's thinking about his physical health, I mean, dude, think about the beating he just took. Everyone's like, oh, I'm neurologically fine. Well, what is, first of all, you don't even know that. And second of all, what does that even mean? Uh, I mean, I know what you're attempting it to mean. Oh, the damage is superficial, but you just don't know what kind of damage you took. You look at someone like taking a ton of damage like Lawler. Whoa, that dude's been having war after war after war after war. Look at Robbie Lawler's record right now real quickly. Think about what Lawler has done in the last like a year or two. Okay, think about this. In 2004, he had the win over Johnny Hendricks, that was five rounds. Excuse me, the loss over Johnny Hendricks, that was five rounds. Then he beat Jake Allenberger in the third round. Then, five rounds, Matt Brown. Five rounds, Johnny Hendricks. Into the fifth round was Rory McDonald. Five rounds with Carlos Condit. Wow. That is a lot of abuse. I think in that stretch, he's taken more significant strikes than any other fighter on the UFC roster. Um... That is an outrageous amount of damage. An outrageous amount of damage. So, these guys, and you're asking about Condit, I'm just saying these guys like Lawler and Condit, um, you know, when they express that they might be <clears throat> at the tail end of their uh, contributions to fighting, it should be, I think, partly Condit has had some career setbacks, some losses here, injuries there. You know, he was never really able to build off his, I mean, he built off some momentum at certain points, but. You know, never in that culminating experience of getting a UFC title from those WEC days. I think it's probably a little bit, um, eats at him a little bit. So, uh, who would I pick in the rematch? I would pick Condit, honestly. Um, but you know, is that a fight Lawler could easily win? Yes. Nate Diaz versus Ferguson. I don't think Nate Diaz or Dustin Poirier can beat Ferguson. Can Lawler versus Condit be summed up to what you value more, volume or significance? Carlos obviously threw and landed more, but at the end of the day, you remember the strikes that were significant and fight-altering. Every time Lawler threw and landed, he made you remember it. That's what the judges remembered as well. That's why Robbie won the fight. When he threw, he tried to finish. When Carlos threw, more often than not, he was accumulating. Guess that night the judges wanted cannon fire over musket fire. I, I don't even know that I agree with this analysis. Carlos had him rocked way more than Lawler had rocked Carlos. Think about that fourth round where he was doing this number. Lawler was. Who who hurt the other guy worse in that fight? Now maybe in that fifth round, the very end of that fifth round, maybe Carlos got the worst of that. You could probably argue that. But in the first four rounds, seems to me that Lawler got the worst of it. The two are not exclusive. The question is to what extent does Carlos's volume um, cloud and confuse his impact? When you have to take inventory of so many strikes, um, do the ones that really do damage stand out, especially if they have good defense, especially if they wear it well? I don't think he wore it very well in that fourth, Lawler didn't. Um, you know, I think in a general, from a macro perspective, you could make an argument about, well, is it volume versus significance, but volume and significance are not mutually exclusive. In the case of Carlos Condit, they are, they are rooted together. I think that's at the core of arguing for him. You want to throw it the fifth round, throw it out. I think Carlos won three of the first four rounds, not because he landed more because he landed the more significant strikes. And when we say significant, understand what that means by fight metric standards, A, a significant strike is just a strike at distance. It's not a qualifier on how well it landed. A significant strike does not have to land well, or it can land well. It can be either one. It's just when landed at distance. That's all that means. So um, to me, you know, some of what Condit did in terms of achievement is that there may have been a wash in terms of the significance of it. When I say significance, I mean the, the actual impact, not the distance, and that Condit's extra volume was all that you needed to really sell it. But this is not a case of one guy hit the other guy really hard and one guy hit the other guy a lot. just not really hard. No. Condit hit Lawler very hard and a lot. That, to me, is the course of uh, the, 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 the nature of arguing in favor of him. It's simply it's not a case of that Lawler was the only guy really landing power punches. Lawler may have landed some memorable ones because I think Condit gets off balance. This is another part I mentioned before on my you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, these guys were in there fighting. It was a real thing. None of it was acting. None of it was pretend. None of it was predetermined. They were in there trying to scrap, trying to win. But but the way in which your body looks, the way in which your body wears damage, the way in which your head absorbs it, the way in which your chin eats it, the way in which your body looks when you throw, all of these things, the sound that it makes, you could say these things don't make an impact. They all do. Judging. Of anything, absent numerical data, which those judges do not have, is just judging performance art. And Condit does himself a disservice when he wears damage. Like, his chin is amazing, but he gets his head rocked a lot. I think that has a big effect on the judges. How much does that hurt Carlos Condit? Probably not much. He wasn't slurring his words at the post-fight press conference. He didn't have any broken teeth. I don't think he bit off part of his tongue. Nothing. But how you look physically when you eat a shot, bang, this this impacts the ability of someone to tell what's going on because they have no other data to go on. They don't know how much you're hurt. They don't know how much it affected you. They don't know if it hurt Lawler's knuckles worse because it landed maybe on the crown of your head somewhere. They don't know any of these things. So when you say, well, it's volume versus significance, I, I, in a very generalized way, but to me, that doesn't really tell the story. The tells the story is um, one guy was throwing home runs, another guy was throwing home runs and bunts and singles and doubles, and one guy wasn't throwing as many home runs, but he was landing some big ones, and he maybe landed the biggest home run of the game in that fourth round. So no, it doesn't really. And and it's you know. How does someone look? How does their body move when they're out of position? Carlos Connor a little bit off balance sometimes in those pocket exchanges. He would lose a bit of the boxing game. It was a it was a it was a difference of ranges. It was a difference of distances. It was a difference of um you know striking styles too. I thought Lawler was getting kind of chewed up in the clinch a little bit, but then when Condor would plant his feet and throw, he would get countered and his head would get wobbled. Donkest answer of 2015. Luke, thanks for the live chat. Really nice to be able to have uh, bounce ideas. Okay. Sometimes we're not the only ones who are donks. This is true. What was the question you feel you answered the worst in 2015? The one where afterwards you probably hit your head against the wall in frustration. Predictions aside. Personally, I had a bit of a laugh when you agreed with Rousey's statement that women were harder to fight than men because they are less skilled. No, I don't take that back at all. That, that argument is still correct. Yes, it's going to be true that if you're fighting less skilled opposition and you are more skilled, skills win fights. But that's not what the argument was. She didn't say it was, I don't know, she may have said it was harder. But the argument that I made was that it's much more, it's unpredictable and it's dangerous. Someone who doesn't, you know, if you know, if you have two purple belts in jiu-jitsu and they're going through a sequence of attacks, and you know if you put pressure on some guy this way, he's either going to force into you or he's going to turtle, and if he doesn't force into you, he turtles, You that, that you know that turtle is coming, but that person turtling knows that the hook is coming, but that person who is going to put the hook in knows that your hook block hook is coming, and they may try and block the elbow. There's going to be all different kinds of things that happen in these exchanges where you can kind of tell, and it's who's going to win, who's got more hustle, who's got maybe a maybe slight refinement of skills. Two skilled people going at it like that are going to make skilled choices. Somebody who doesn't, yes, chances are you're probably going to be able to beat them over the long haul. They're also going to make crazy choices about how to do things that you don't expect and can be very unpredictable. That's especially true in the striking department. You might say they're easy pickings, and generally they are. But there are going to be those moments where where they're just going to do something crazy and they're going to land, and it's going to be a big problem for you because you just never saw it coming. Really skilled people can land punches on you that you don't see coming through that skill crazy people will land it like Charles Crazy Horse Bennett because he's just a madman. You can't tell me that Charles Crazy Horse Bennett is not a dangerous opponent. You also can't tell me he's the most skilled opponent because he just does wacky stuff, things you don't expect. You want to lock a triangle onto him, he'll post up because he's super athletic and he'll swing around in in a circle and then slam you into the cage. He's done this. And then he'll go and he'll sit up on top of the cage. And he might land a punch that you never see coming because he doesn't even know he's going to throw it until he just decides. These are dangerous opponents, man. These are dangerous, dangerous opponents. But he's not the most skilled. Anyway, which one did I get wrong? God, I'm sure there's a thousand of them I got wrong. Um, the only ones that I really think about was I try to think about... Um, generally, I try to be skeptical about fighters. I try to keep a high threshold of skepticism before I'm willing to say, um, okay, he's the real deal. And I probably had that too high on Conor McGregor. For some reason, I I, I could see the talent. You, the, 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 the argument with Conor McGregor was never that he was not good. He was always very, very good. The question for me was, I was just a little skeptical of his enduring success. Um, and... I'm not sure why. Because I've I've seen other strikers come through and answer things like that, and I haven't been as tough on them. So I'm not sure what that was. I'm trying to figure that out. So that is probably, you know, picking against him and then picking Aldo. I mean, they're justifiable claims to pick either ones, especially in the Mendez case. Um, But yeah, being so skeptical of Conor McGregor is something I feel like I got wrong. Did the UFC let Holly fight before the Ronda rematch? Yes. No argument. People tell me like, oh, well, she might lose the title. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Do you really think, if it came down to it, which I don't think it will, but if it does, do you really mean to say that a home versus Rousey fight won't sell because there's no title on the line, a rematch. If you want to make that argument, by by all means, try. I'm not going to do that. I don't think there is a shred of merit to that argument. Now, would it be better if a title was on the line? Yeah, it'd be a little bit better, a little little bit cleaner, a little bit neater. If you don't think you're going to sell a million pay-per-views with Rousey versus Holm with or without a title, I don't know what you're smoking. It will sell a million guaranteed as long as the UFC normally promotes it like it would have. The title is not necessary there. Ronda Rousey's popularity and the interest in that rematch is far greater than any title can bring people to the door with. I agree the circumstances would be better with it. I wouldn't challenge that. But people are like, what if she loses? So what? (laughs) Women's MMA is in a time and place where you can make a lot more, um, you can play with this kind of thing a little bit. Oh, the fight can't take place between Cyborg and Rousey until it takes place at one thirty-five. Bull s, there you got two women's divisions. You really mean to tell me you have to be so rigid about it? Come on, man! It doesn't. It's just not real. It's not real when you have when you have a total of of not three, not four, not five, two women's divisions, and you're going to be. We can only have it at this weight. Be serious. This is not a serious argument. You have two weight classes and you have a fight that exists basically outside of that and you're not going to make it because you think that people care about the title in a world where there's two weight classes where their celebrity has at this point, maybe before, not now, has a whole lot to do with her being champion. Ronda Rousey is about to be in a gazillion movies. She's going to host Saturday Night Live in a few weeks. well, How is Ronda Rousey going to host Saturday Night Live without her belt? I don't know. Successfully. It's just not, they're not required. They're not required to make it work. Again, they might be better with it. You know, maybe if Cyborg could have made 135, that would have been great, but she can't. And now you're saying, well, she can't. So therefore nothing, all or nothing. Come on, man. You take that S to another sucker. It doesn't work here. UFC thriving without past stars. Luke, as we wrap up 2015, there is no John Jones. Well, he's coming back. No GSP. We'll see. Anderson Silva, uh, he's fighting in a month. Velasquez, fighting in a month. And Rousey, uh, Velasquez and Rousey both thought decisively lost their titles. However, the year ended with arguably the most successful and exciting quarter in UFC history. What the heck? How important do you rank unpredictability as a key driver for MMA fandom? Thriving without past stars, but they're not thriving without current stars is the difference. Rousey may have lost, but she had a big fight. Velasquez may have lost, but he had a decent fight. Um, Silva had a big fight, even though he had the the drug issues. Jones fought in 2015, I believe, right? The beginning, yes. So Jones had a big fight. So you're naming a bunch of people. Now, GSP didn't compete, but you're naming a bunch of people who already fought last year. Well, that's one reason why. The next reason why is the next generation of stars are beginning to emerge, no, no more so than Conor McGregor. Uh, it's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Um, Who would win in a half-court game of basketball, me or Ariel? I've never seen Ariel play. Now, I've got a height advantage, um, so maybe in the paint I would be pretty good. I have no idea how he shoots in the perimeter or uh, out in free space, so I don't know. Which would be bigger and more lucrative, GSP return fight in Canada or McGregor fight in Ireland or Holm Rousey 2? Ooh, Jesus, that's tough. Uh, for GSP, it might depend on the opponent, but that could be huge. Um, Holm Rousey. I think Holm Rousey 2 might be the biggest. Does it seem like Lawler and Holm are punch drunk to you? No. How much of a chance do you give Misha Tate versus Holly Holm? Uh, I've talked about this before. I give her a decent chance. I think she can box her way up a little bit. She has good wrestling. Um, she has better entries. And if she she gets caught early, but she can make adjustments. She has better entries into the pocket than Rousey. I'm not saying she has amazing ones or the best ones, but she has better ones. Um, she's got better feints. She's got better to. She's got good uh, corralling footwork. Um, she has decent better better arguably better wrestling in the clinch for the kind of wrestling that might have an effect on home not for the kind that rousey was doing a little bit different but uh um i i would like home to win there but it's a tough fight misha's a tough fight oh what if she loses wow then you get to do home versus rousey or home versus tate huh people like oh you couldn't give rousey an immediate title shot off a loss oh you couldn't really you're gonna you're gonna object to this, really? This is what I'm talking about with women's MMA. You have the ability now, and you may not have this forever, but you have the ability now to just play with the rules a little bit. You do. You have two divisions. You're gonna be so rigid and run it just like you're gonna run men's lightweight, the most competitive division on earth. Come on, man. This is not how. This is not reality. the The pro wrestling reference you made was a ladder match. The belt is above the cage and you have to get it. There you go. Ladder match. Who monitors fighters when they're suspended by commissions? No one. How do we know that they're not sparring after a KO? We don't. Is Luke Skywalker Ray's father? I don't know. Is McGregor innovative in his approach to fighting or is he credited too much? He isn't he is he is innovative in certain capacities, yes. But I had people asking me, is he revolutionizing the game? Well, no, he's not revolutionizing anything. But he is one of the guys at the front of the charge, I think, leading a direction away from strict reliance on Thai boxing with a few extra tricks. I think the value, we talked about this with Brandon Gibson, the value of strict reliance on Thai boxing. If you are at an MMA gym today and all you are training is Thai boxing, you are training in an antiquated style. Well, it listening to you discuss your home office was the best. It's not bad for a home office. I got a printer, got a TV, got my Xbox, got my DirecTV, got my desk, got my bathroom. Got no fridge, man. Got no man fridge. Why can't we get MMA fans to rally behind unionization in the way that they did the Nick Diaz situation? For any number of reasons. Rallying behind a, uh, a White House petition because you're angry in the immediate aftermath of what you see as a... a a uh, legal injustice you can whip up fury in that way what you're trying to make is an intellectual argument there's no touchstone moment you can point to of injustice like aha and yes you could say what about the rights in perpetuity being signed away or something like that the memory has faded people don't even know what that means really they don't appreciate the significance of it you have to beat people up here to get that you have to rally to their causes and um, mma fans don't necessarily have their interest in alignment With athletes, you see this all the time. When like when there's an NFL lockout, these these players, I'd play this game for free. Yeah, you play this game for free because you suck at it. That's why you play this game for free. Odell Beckham doesn't play for free because he's good at it. That's why. That's the difference between you and Odell Beckham Jr. You play for free because you don't have a choice. Man, I'd play in the NFL for free. Well, you're an idiot. You're an idiot who can't play football very well. No wonder you would give away your services that are not world-class for anyone to enjoy. When you have services that are in high demand, like Odell Beckham Jr., you don't just take whatever they give you. You make them give you what you're owed. Big, 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 big difference. But you hear it all the time. These greedy millionaires, these greedy millionaires in the NFL playing a kid's game for a king's ransom Fans just don't have the same interests necessarily that that athletes do. Um, The only people that are going to protect the athletes' interests are going to be either the most close associates of those athletes or the athletes themselves. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you're a fighter out there and you want a union, it is up to you. Media can do some stuff. Fans can do some stuff. Sponsors, friends, family, they can do some stuff. It's really up to you. Oof! If you were to book Brian Ortega versus Yair Rodriguez, who would you get? I'd give Ortega the ground edge. I'd give Yair Rodriguez and his explosive, like movements he can launch into the edge on the feet. How good is Juliana Pena? Very good. She's got some issues to work out with distance closing. She reminds me of Paige VanZant where they'll just be... Now she's much more technical than Paige Van Zandt. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're the same, but in the sense of just just forcing you to play speed chess with her so she can make better on-the-fly decisions where she thrives than you can. Um, uh, but I, I, she's got she's got to clean up some of the other stuff. Do you know when part three of the BJJ Scott video is coming out? I do not. If Holly Holm fights Misha Tate in the next few months, we'll Ronda fight at UFC 200, but only if Tate wins. Maybe. Someone goes, why is everyone crying about the ruthless one winning? It's not like Diego Sanchez versus Ross Pearson. It's not, but there was also no title on the line. We're not talking about one of the, the great welterweights of our time. Carlos Kahn is one of the great welterweights of our time, potentially hanging it up because he may have been denied something that was his to begin with. Um, There's a lot of major consequence in ways that Pearson versus Sanchez doesn't carry. Okay, let's go back. And I'm going to drop to the bottom of the screen because everyone was like, oh, who's all bitter that I didn't go there. Uh, Who's your favorite or highest regarded non-Zufa-owned prospect right now? Maybe MVP. Let's go to the bottom here. John Jones being an extra cornerman. What do you think about John Jones circling the cage counterclockwise all the way around to corner Condit? Pretty sure they only allow three cornermen for a reason. I didn't know he did that. I'll take a look at the video. That's interesting. How would you see a fight between Aldo and Dominic Cruz going down? That'd be a lot for Dominic Cruz to handle, I think, in terms of the power of the attack of Aldo. Uh, what is the radio show, the Luke Thomas show, 4 p.m., Sirius XM 93, every Friday? Got a big show coming this Friday, too. So you're all going to love that. Um, Why not 10-10 in round three? I scored round three for Lawler due to the heavy shots he landed, which seemed to stun Condit, but the round did still feel like a toss-up. Why isn't the ten ten used more often by judges and media when rounds have no clear winner? Does either fighter really deserve to win an unclear round? I would agree with you. 10-10 and 10 should be used more liberally. I think that would help clear up some of the confusion related to the 10-point must system and some of the uh, issues that uh, currently... Jesus, you hear this, dog? You hear that? Come here, buddy. Come here. I'm just going to kill you if you don't stop. All right. Um... But I think a lot of commissions don't have good um, a good grasp on how to give offer best practices on how to use it. A lot of commissions don't really understand it. A lot of commissions don't like it. Um, so you can get it in your better places, your Nevadas, your Californias, and your New Jerseys. But you're probably going to find guys that are hesitant to use in other places because they're either told not to use them or at least encouraged not to use them. They don't really know the proper way to use them. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about the 10-point must system if you're Aaron Rodgers and you've got all your weapons, Jordy Nelson and everyone else, you can run an effective offense if your offensive line isn't too banged up. My point being was, and I made this on the Monday Morning Analyst this point, the, 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 It's judging is hard, yes, because this... Judging is hard anyway, for the reasons I mentioned before, because it's like performance art. But more than that, it's because the 10-point must system limits you. If you have a truly deft hand, and you have some liberalism to play with the rules a little bit in terms of going 10-10 or 10-8, you're going to render more accurate scorecards. I would not take too much issue with a 10-10 third round. I scored it for Condit, but I see your point. I don't think 10-10 is, is an indefensible argument. Um, and that would give us a cleaner sense of who won. But I also uh, understand you only have certain people volunteering for this job. They only have certain kinds of capacities mentally. You know, They're not idiots, you understand, but you know, they're they're of reasonable intelligence but they're not geniuses okay they only have how much discretion and direction from the commission for which they work they only have how much practice they only have what kind of seating they only have what kind of hearing you don't really know you don't really know you know to some extent you have some of this information you can piece together but the point being is doing that job given the volunteer crop and given the rule set it can be done inside the 10 point must system It just takes an expert, expert hand at it. What we need is a rule system that enables someone who doesn't have as much commission um, help and someone who doesn't have as much experience to still be able to render a coherent, meaningful, helpful scorecard. That's what we need. And maybe that's making some adjustments to the 10-point must system even more, or maybe it's scrapping it all together. But the current state of the 10-point must system, because you hear these referees who have all, you know, I saw Mark Goddard talking about to Joe Rogan on Twitter. And yeah, maybe Mark Goddard, who has you know umpteenth thousand fights in the octagon and cages, he's refed. He has a really good sense about what's happening, and I'm sure he's done some judging himself. He might be able to like to drive the plane, but we need a plane that can be taken off without someone having a pilot's license. Uh, Luke, you used to be on countdown shows. What happened? Um, Not long after that, Dana White went crazy on me on Twitter, and I was never invited back. Whether the two are related, I don't know. Either way, I don't care. I wouldn't do it again anyway. Greatest UFC fighter to never win an official UFC championship. Maybe Gustafson, maybe Bisping, maybe Condit, um, maybe – I mean, to some extent, you can make an argument like Sakuraba, but I know what you're talking about, like of the modern era, sustained dominance and division. Um, So this is Kenny Florian. That's a good choice, too. Yeah, there's a lot of those you could pick. All right, high-level MMA. In your most recent Monday Morning Analyst show, you didn't cover Ryzen's fights because it wasn't high-level MMA. It's true. Please support this characterization. Okay, go watch Ryzen. Someone says, setting aside the circus acts, I believe there were some very skilled fighters that we don't see often, and we should seize the opportunity to analyze their technique, even against lesser competition. Someone says, Crone. Crone is not elite. Someone says, Fedor. I got news for you. His grip on elite is tenuous. Someone says, Sauer. Sauer is an elite kickboxer. I don't know to what extent he's elite in anything else he's also older and uh, not in his prime anymore and then someone says alki alki is the champion in one um he is borderline elite so i don't have to defend anything um yeah crone has very elite pure jujitsu. he's not an elite mma fighter by any stretch of the imagination not even close and i and i love his jiu-jitsu game Go back and look at his armbar from ADCC from the overhook and the guard on JT Torres. I mean, it's one of the most sublime armbars I think I've ever seen. That's got nothing to do with MMA fighting. One says, can you explain what your own definition would be of significant strike and fight metric definition is if it differs? Again, the fight metric definition of significant is only a strike that takes place at distance. It is not a qualitative assessment of that strike's impact. Take a couple more of these and we'll, we'll started it late. It says it is virtually impossible to get your question answered if you don't post within 15 minutes this of this getting posted. Not true. I just noted your own comment. Madrid fan, what are your thoughts on the Benitez firing? Here's the problem with the Benitez firing. I have no sympathy for Benitez. I didn't think he should have gotten the job to begin with. He didn't do. Everyone's like, "Well, what did he do poorly?" I mean, it was. You could make an argument for consistent underperformance. They didn't do poorly. They did get thrashed at El Clasico, but you know, uh, I think Ancelotti and Mourinho also lost their first Clasico matches as well, and maybe other ones too. Um, The problem is that he came in with bad mojo and he never was able to achieve the kind of excellence or player support in that short amount of time to get rid of it. Like he just came in under a dark cloud and had they gone in there and blown the doors off of people and people really love what he had done. I think they would have um, accepted him, but you know, from the first match, the sporting he match, a team that had just been promoted from um, re- relegation and they stonewalled Real Madrid. It was, you know, and then benching Hamas and benching Isco and, um, and, you know, putting bail as a number 10. I think it's had some success for bail, but I'm not sure that it works necessarily. I'd like to see him on the wing, but you get the idea. All right, that is it. Well, let's do this, y'all. Let's call it a day. If you got a question for me, email me, Thomas at SBNation.com. You want to get me on Twitter? Twitter doc, or Twitter.com. Um, at SBN, Luke Thomas on Twitter. Thank you for watching the Monday Morning Analyst. Thank you for watching this. Give it a thumbs up if you like it. I would really appreciate it. Um, there's an MMA beat tomorrow. We're back, baby. We have to say about that in your face. So we're going to be on the MMA beat tomorrow, and uh, there'll be some good coverage for you this weekend. One last reminder, check out the BJJ Scout video. I always tell people what's the best way to learn about fighting. Go train. You don't have to fight necessarily, but you got to get in that gym. you got to break a sweat. you got to learn from an instructor. But it is also true. You can supplement your knowledge. You're never going to learn how to fight watching from video but you can definitely supplement your knowledge by watching things like what bjj scout produced um in that video go look at his analysis or her i'm not even sure if it's his or her and and enjoy it because it's phenomenal you just don't get to see stuff like this very often this is the heyday of mma analysis in terms of video breakdowns okay thank you so much for watching welcome to 2016 itunes.com slash promotional malpractice and until next time donks stay frosty